this week on C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast, Wesleyan University professor Andrew Curran looks at how the concept of race emerged during the 18th century Enlightenment period. He's interviewed by George Mason University history professor Christy Pekikaro. This is Rachel from C-SPAN's podcast team. If you read nonfiction books and thought-provoking discussions with authors spark your interest, you'll find the Book TV newsletter a valuable learning resource for staying informed. Hi, John here, one of the producers at Book TV. Think of the Book TV newsletter as your weekly literary update, your source for advance notice of program highlights, featured book festivals, and in-depth profiles of nonfiction authors. Explore the Book TV newsletter to organize your viewing and ensure you never miss a significant literary event. Be a Book TV insider with our weekly newsletter, because Book TV is television for serious readers like you. Subscribe today at cspan.org slash connect. That's cspan.org slash connect. It's so nice to be with you today to talk about this exciting book, Who's Black and Why? A Hidden Chapter from the 18th Century Invention of Race. This came out with Harvard in 2022. And uh, I'd just love to get started by asking you about the genesis of this project. How, how did this project come about? Well, thanks. It's kind of a long story, and a story involves uh, the most important kind of uh, person uh, in the project, and that's Henry Louis Gates, Jr. Uh, apparently, he was uh, reading an earlier book that I wrote called The Anatomy of Blackness. Mm-hmm that mentioned this uh, debate or this uh, contest uh, which took place at the Bordeaux Academy of Sciences. And I'll get back to that in a second. And at the same time, he was already thinking about doing a project on this and he just gave me a phone call out of the blue. It was a, an amazing day where he said, listen, I wanna do a, a, a book and I'm gonna call it Who's Black and Why about this contest that took place at the Bordeaux Academy of Sciences in 1741. And we worked on it very closely for two years and it just came out in paperback, by the way. Oh, exciting. That's fantastic. I didn't know that. Wonderful. Well, listen, so uh, what I'd love to know is if you can give us a bit of background information on the historical circumstances surrounding this essay. Bring us back to France in the 1740s. What is happening? How can we understand the broader circumstances here. How big is France? How how can we uh, dive back into this moment in time? Well, there's a lot to cover, but let's start first with some demographics. That's a good question. Um, France is a very, very big country in the 18th century. It's mm-hmm. actually the third biggest country in the world, which is hard to imagine. Wow, yeah. <laughs> 25 million people at the time. Million. You think that England is about six or seven million people and Spain about the same thing. And here in North America, there are a million people living along the East Coast, not counting Native Americans. Mm. Um, And that includes enslaved people as well. So really, the numbers are really quite uh, indicative of of what's going to happen during the 18th century. And uh, I think when it gets to uh, Bordeaux, which is the place that we'll be talking about quite a bit, mm-hmm. uh, some background is useful there too. Bordeaux is, uh, has this academy, the Scientific Academy. Um, scientific academies rose up almost in opposition to universities during the 18th century. Mm. Um, the, the Bordeaux Academy of Sciences was founded in 1713 by a group of uh, nobles and aristocrats and members of parliament. Uh, They met uh, pretty much every Sunday for uh, the next uh, 90 years or so, and or 80 years or so. And what's really amazing about the Scientific Academy is that they got together a bunch of gentlemen naturalists to to consult uh, with each other and think about the big questions of the day. And these questions were generally much more naturalistic than what was going on in universities. As I said, universities were more like, uh, almost like vocational schools. So the University of Paris produced lawyers and theologians and doctors, et cetera. The various faculties did that. Whereas the scientific academies would take up these questions, they were much more interested in, interested in research and experimentation mm-hmm. than what was going on in the universities. Universities replicated knowledge and academies were trying to create knowledge. And so it was that in mind that these uh, academicians would uh, create these contests on an annual basis. And during the 1720s and 1730s, 
they uh, announced contests where they would give a pretty big cash prize of about mm. 300 pounds uh, a year each for each contest. And in 1739, they got the idea of creating a contest on the nature and the origin and the causes of black skin and textured African hair. And they send it around in the greatest or the, the most popular scientific journal of the time, the Journal des Savants, all around Europe. And they got 16 essays that came in in 1741, two years later. My goodness. So, so uh, let's take a pause for a second just to understand Bordeaux, this location, Bordeaux. Um, what is about that city specifically, why this particular academy asking this question about black skin and hair? Yeah, Bordeaux uh, during the 18th century was the second biggest city in France. Uh, it had a population of about between, you know, during the 18th century, it varied from about 85,000 to maybe 105,000, something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and it, uh, as it became more and more popular, obviously there was a larger population. And uh, Bordeaux is uh, slightly uh, in, in the interior of France, but it's it's linked by the Gallon River to the Atlantic. And so it was a very, very important port city. We all think about Bordeaux and Bordeaux wine. Bordeaux was exporting wine all over uh, uh, Europe uh, during the 18th century. It was making a lot of money on that. But it also had very, very deep ties with France's colonies. And, and uh, we don't think too much about the French Caribbean, except people who are taking cruises. But France had some major overseas colonies during the 18th century mm -hmm. um, in Guadeloupe, uh, what, we, what we call St. Kitts uh, now, or St. Christopher, uh, Martinique. Martinique was the most important uh, island for a long time. And then Saint-Domingue, which is Haiti. And uh, Bordeaux was not uh, involved in the tra uh, slave trade on the same level as, say, Nult, uh, mm -hmm. but it was certainly involved with the slave trade. It was making so much money, though, from wine and other uh, forms of trade that it didn't really get involved in, in the slave trade until on a, on a large scale until later in the century. So, again, um, in terms of the slave trade, uh, Bordeaux certainly became uh, a much more important figure toward the end of the century. It was deporting three or 4,000 uh, Africans to the, the Caribbean at wow. the end of the century, toward the 1789-1790. Early on, it was more like 500 or 1,000. But in total, uh, Bordeaux deported uh, 150,000 uh, Africans to the New World and some of the uh, Pacific colonies as well. Wow. So when you think about these numbers again, you asked about numbers, 150,000 people is, you know, one and a half times the total population uh, in Bordeaux. Oh my so gosh. Bordeaux got involved uh, uh, in this, you know, the, the, the 16th, 17th century and uh, exported slaves into the 19th century. Wow. So tell me, if these academicians uh, took interest in this subject, Bordeaux is a slave trading port, also a major port of trade. Are there black people in Bordeaux? Yeah, I think that's one of the, the hidden parts of this contest. Uh, theoretically, this contest was apolitical. It didn't really talk about the slave trade at all. It was, mm. what is the source of black skin and black hair? But anyone walking around Bordeaux in the 18th century would have seen you know, uh, especially down toward the port, we've seen a handful of people working on ships. They, we estimate that there were probably 5,000 people, uh, people of African descent that went through Bordeaux during the 18th century. There might be two or 300 there at any given time. As I said, working in warehouses, working in ports, or working as valets, sometimes mm -hmm. ship captains or planters, rich planters, and they're phenomenally rich. Think kind of Silicon Valley rich. Wow. Would come back to Bordeaux. Uh, and build uh, fantastic uh, townhouses, and, mm -hmm. and and one of the th uh, things they could sh that allowed them to show their wealth was having uh, enslaved Africans working for them. Wow! So yes, there were a lot of Africans or people of African descent, so-called Creole Africans, mm -hmm. uh, coming back to Bordeaux from the from the Caribbean. Wow! And and uh, you also talk about this in the book. There are there are some famous families who come through and are located there, right? The, the family of uh, the Haitian revolutionary Toussaint Louverture, uh, uh, they come through, is that correct? Yeah, that happens after the Haitian revolution. It's actually yes. quite interesting 
that 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 occurred because uh, Bordeaux was in such a dire straits after the uh, the Haitian Revolution. So we're you know we cut now to 1804, uh, um, you know 70 years after the contest, more or less. At this point, the uh, Bordeaux's trade has plummeted because Bordeaux owned more than half of the sugar plantations on Saint Domingue, Haiti. Wow. So much of its wealth was coming from that, and not only from sugar, but from the direct trade. So Bordeaux was manufacturing uh, guns and armaments and leather goods and tools and so on and so forth. And and then the uh, colonial commodities were coming back into the city. But yes, it's true that the uh, that the children of Toussaint Louverture came to Bordeaux. Toussaint himself had already died by that time, yes. uh, sent off to a French prison to die uh, in the early 19th century. Wow, incredible to be layering on this part of the history of Bordeaux to what what many of us already know and think about, which is wine. Uh, to think of this as just such a, a, a huge port city and producer of goods that are circulating in the colonial world, and mm. also where slavery, as you're saying, is a sign of wealth and status, where these families uh, can show um, uh, you know that that they that they have this wealth that they that they are part of this system, and so in that way that may have brought them to this interest. It's it's very interesting that step uh, toward an involvement and in wanting to think about pose that question about black skin and hair. Yes, I mean we see this um, particularly in the art of the time period. You can see, if you go to the Bordeaux uh, Museum of Fine Art, you can see occasionally uh, in certain rooms, you'll see portraits of rich uh, Bordeaux dignitaries. And some of them, they have these 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 black valets with them or children who are raised almost like toys in uh, some of these households. Wow, my goodness, yes, that that is fascinating. And it brings me to another question, uh, which you're indicating here about racial thinking. What is going on here? There's this fascination you're saying uh, in uh, that is uh, evident uh, in other domains, uh, in art history, um, probably also colonial products of different sorts uh, mm -hmm. that uh, provides this evidence that people are thinking maybe in some way about race. Yeah, so the question of race is at the heart of the contest. It's also at the heart of the book. Um, during the 18th century, we talk a lot about the invention of race, which mm -hmm. is one part of this, the, the title of the book, you know, uh, the, the idea that race was actually being fabricated during the 18th century. I think one of the great thing, great kind of mysteries of our lives these days is that we talk about race all the time, but we don't know really where it came from. We kind of assume that the xenophobia and the abuses of the past have always been there, and they have, and there's always been kind of a uh, intellectual infrastructure for that, the notion of race. But the notion of race, the way we understand it right now, was something that came about during the 18th century. And this is actually a micro history and a macro history of that phenomenon when you think about it, because you have a, a contest, and the contest is not simply a contest. It is um, a scientific academy or science in general claiming the right to, to uh, determine what exactly each category of human on the planet was worth mm -hmm. and what its significance was and what its origin was. For the longest time, first, the, the term race didn't mean race in the same way we understand it. If you said the word race in 1720 or 1680, most people would say, would think that, oh, maybe that person's talking about a race of dogs or mm. a race of horses. Okay, or, animals. Or possibly a race of kings, uh -huh. a race of nobles. And so there is the idea of lineage and bloodlines, but you never talked about groups of people uh, as races. The terms used for say the inhabitants of sub-Saharan Africa might be um, nations, peoples, um, or as things became a little bit closer to natural history and science, 
maybe varieties. And the word varieties is a really interesting word. Um, it, it's actually kind of closer to reality in some ways because uh, the word variety is a botanical term, which implies cross-fertilization and a whole range of different possibilities and phenotypes, whereas the word race implies a certain limited number of groups and lineages. Um, it's, a, it's a zoological term. So you'll notice that the, uh, the contest didn't ask for, you know, what is the source of race? It's asking about skin, it's asking about hair, but it's really asking about something we're called, what we would call race now because it's it's science uh, claiming the right to to do this to say who people are as i just said um now there are a lot of things that we see in the essays which are emblematic of what will happen farther in the century but it's really great because this is a uh, almost like a focus group of race if you want to call it that because we're getting a cross section of what people are thinking in 1739 1740 and they send the essays in. Uh, this is very different from a more horizontal understanding of history where we look at the ideas that evolves through time. Here we're talking about 16 people, theologians, uh, climate theorists, uh, anatomists, um, and um, people much more interested in, in the taxonomy, all supplying their own answers to this question. Wow. Yes. So so let's let's talk about this contest in more depth. Um, so uh, so what what again was the exact wording of the question? Yes. So this is important. Um, what is the source of the degeneration of African skin and African hair? In other words, not simply what are the causes, but what is the degeneration? Yeah. And here we get into something that's a little bit technical. So <laughs> the Bible. Let's do it. Bring us into okay. the technical. Okay. So for the longest time, as I said, this is a moment when science is claiming the right, but they're claiming the right from theology and from, from religion, and particularly from Catholicism and from Christianity. For the longest time, the jurisdiction, the people who had jurisdiction over the question of human categories were theologians or the church in general. Mm -hmm. And the one of the big kind of sources for uh, this is the Old Testament story of Noah and his three sons. So Noah and his ark lands presumably in the Caucasus and his three kids are hanging out after this is all over, Noah, Japheth and Shem. They're, they're hanging out and uh, Noah gets uh, completely drunk and his two of his sons look away from his nakedness and the third son, Ham, happens to look at Noah when he's drunk. And this is a bad idea because when Noah wakes up, he curses Ham. Mm -hmm. In fact, curses the descendants of Ham. And this is the curse of Ham, which uh, marks Ham and makes his sons the, the, the uh, servants of servants. So here's this kind of the justification, both for a mark, which is coloration, and also the idea that people who are black might be uh, um, slaves. Now, this is really not said in the Bible. Later on, biblical exegesis will say this. But the good part of the Bible, the story, is that people are related. Mm. You think about it. There's one faith, and there's one God, and there's one people. And the universalism of Christianity and Catholicism is such that they want to have this message for everybody, no matter what the colors are. And so this biblical idea fuses partially depends on who's talking who's doing the thinking fuses with environmental climate theory from antiquity mm. so you get the bible on the one hand and then climate theory and so people move and then they kind of change hmm. okay as climates now to get to the get to the <laughs> to get to the contest what happens is that they did not want to come up with a contest which encouraged people to to say that there were different species of people. They didn't want to contradict mm, the Bible. Okay. So even though it's a scientific contest, they said, this is about degeneration. And degeneration is a fancy word for saying that you have an original prototype race of people, white people, mm. who moved about the globe and then degenerated in different climates. Now we probably have heard the word degenerate, moral degenerate, it's the idea that there was something pure and original, and then you become worse afterwards. So degeneration is a negative kind of notion. So there's a, a built-in idea that the winning 
essay for this contest will be somebody who says, who explains how Africans degenerated in the uh, torrid zone or in West Africa. Wow, that is so fascinating. So there's a way in which we see uh, an, an early but very clear manifestation of what we would call today white supremacy, that whiteness is the supreme, is the best, and that anything else is, uh, is some layer or type of degeneration from, from that original and best being. I think that went without saying for this group of 40 uh, members of the Bordeaux Academy of Sciences. When they put this together, the idea that, uh, that the white, white people, I'm not gonna say race yet, but it really right. essentially is functioning as a race. The white race was the uh, first and the best. Wow, wow, absolutely fascinating that this was happening already so deep into the past. Yes. Um, it's 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 interesting how people responded to this question. Not everybody, uh, as you know, <laughs> often is the case in such contests. When people ask questions, they didn't answer the question correctly or in the same way that the Ordo <laughs> people were looking for. So there were uh, generally five different tendencies. Uh, uh, so I said there were sixteen essays that came from as far afield as you know, Sweden and Ireland and Germany a lot from France, half mm. were in French, half were in Latin. Wow. Um, there were a number of, of kind of crazy religious uh, explanations. And when I say crazy, crazy because they, they were not related directly to the Bible, but somebody's own interpretation of the Bible mixed in with a little bit of climate science or a little bit of kind of uh, um, anatomy. But the religious, uh, uh, some of the religious ideas, which are actually quite heretical, included the idea that maybe there was a black Adam to begin with. Uh, um, maybe uh, God was disappointed with Africans and made them, uh, mark them for their sins, moral perversity. Maybe blackness was a gift from God to protect people from the sun. So there are a lot of uh, religious explanations uh, that, okay. that were actually submitted. Okay, sure so that that's one of the happen. categories, is sort of the religious the religious approach to answering that question, even though, right. as you're saying, a lot of those explanations were highly speculative and imaginative uh, and very, very personal uh, interpretations of, of sacred texts. Yeah, and I think it's important to note that the people who did this were not interested in Africans. They were interested in preserving the jurisdiction of religion over the question of humankind. Mm -hmm. That's, I think, fascinating. Yes. We talk about the 18th century as being an anthropocentric century, the century of humanism, where people start concentrating much more on the human, turning their, their backs on scripture, turning their backs on received ideas, starting to concentrate on people themselves. You yeah. know, uh, Alexander uh, Pope said, the proper study of mankind is man. This is the idea. These people who are sending in the religious explanations didn't want that to happen. So that's the first category. And I suspect that the, the academy just dumped those uh, explanations. In the archives, you can see they would say, nope, uh, um, excluded from the contest, et cetera. Wow. So are they, did they annotate the essay then? Or did they take their own notes that would say, <laughs> no, not this one? I uh, found the uh, proceedings for when they were trying to decide about the contest, there was such chicken scratch. I couldn't oh understand a word, whole thing. I, I, when I found it, my heart leapt. I said, I'm gonna find out exactly what happened. But it was actually legible. And the secretary during this time was a notoriously uh, bad secretary, probably oh. drinker because it was really, he kept terrible records before this contest and after it's much better. But 1749-41 was a tough year for this. Okay. Well, anyway, I digress. I meant to tell you about some of the other tendencies. Yes, yes. let's talk about another <laughs> tendency, please. So um, there are a lot of environmental uh, explanations as well, or climatological, as we might say these days. Okay. People, as I said, were looking back to the past for explanations about why people would look the way they looked. And they look back to the father of many ideas that are still circulating during the 18th century, and that's Hippocrates. Mm. Um, these ideas, uh, there's a whole different range of them uh, that explain the fact, that tend or attempt to explain the fact that skin color, the humors, 
the uh, hair, everything comes from the climate. They're really not using the word degeneration because they're looking back to antiquity in a kind of a different way. Okay. The third tendency is a, a genealogical tendency. And this one is super interesting um, because it, this is a, a, a moment when natural history changes. Now we think about natural history, we think about the study of birds and plants and animals and so on and so forth. But for the longest time, nature didn't have a history. It was seen as static. The uh, earth was supposedly invented or invented, created uh, 6,000 years before. God made everything in seven days and that's the end of the story. Hmm. This would be exactly what you would see at the Creationist uh, Museum here in the United States. Mm -hmm. Things haven't changed. A genealogical explanation for humankind actually attacks this notion by saying humans can change over time. Now, it's partially compatible with the idea of, you know, Ham's or the, the three sons of Noah kind of changing over time. Yes. But a real genealogical, biological uh, explanation doesn't talk about God, doesn't talk about nature, really talks about the fact that climate can change people both on the level of skin, but anatomically, physiologically, it's a much more in-depth proto-scientific understanding of dynamic change over time. And that's very scary to religious thinkers because wow, it bet. almost steals creation from God and puts it in the hand of nature during the 18th century. So there are a number of story, number of explanations uh, that are genealogical in, notion in, in, in nature mm -hmm. and do uh, overlap with the idea of degeneration. Degeneration can be kind of neutral, just color. The brains are the same, everything's the same. Or degeneration can really talk about substantive changes, which mean that there's a hierarchy in humans. And that's something maybe we'll get back to in a second. Wow. And the next tendency that we see in these essays uh, is anatomical. And this is something that's really overlooked, I think, by a lot of historians. Uh, the anatomical understanding of Africans in particular, and I should probably say that if people had been literally colorblind, I think the notion of race would not have evolved from variety. I'm sorry, the notion of race wouldn't have existed in the same way. Mm. Maybe the notion of varieties would have just stayed the same. Yes. But but something, the, the science or the proto-science of anatomy was really very important in making this, this shift occur. Mm. And among the essays, there's one, there's several mentions of different kind of anatomical structures associated with um, uh, Africans in particular during the 18th century. But there's one in particular that comes from a doctor named uh, Barrer, B-A-R-R-E-R-E, -R -E, who is a surgeon who's from Perpignan, who goes to Cayenne, which is a an, was an island next to French Guiana. Mm -hmm. And he is a surgeon on plantations and he dissects a number of enslaved Africans. Oh, wow. And for this essay for the Bordeaux Academy, he says that I have discovered the existence of black blood and black bile. He's saying there's an elemental, literally an elemental difference between Africans and white people. So this is oh, a source incredible. of coloring the skin. Huh. And this sets off um, one of the, uh, 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 encourages and, and contributes to a, a really important line of thinking during the 18th century where people are starting to talk about race on the inside, not just the outside. For the longest time, race was just color. And as soon as you start thinking about race as being associated with, uh, you know, as I said, blood, bile, and then brains, mm. pineal glands, and even sperm, we're, we're talking about something that's quite different. Race being imprinted, hereditary, part of, of humans on a way that's very, very different from the way that kind of a soft, degeneration might be interpreted. So the anatomical side is very important. And I you know, would add a footnote here that this guy, uh, Barère, Pierre Barère, Pierre Barère um, publishes his essay. Uh, and this becomes incredibly important uh, throughout the 18th century. It's cited by a lot of people. It's republished. It's cited in the Diderot's Encyclopedia. It is uh, part and parcel of uh, Thomas Jefferson's notes on the state of Virginia as well. This idea becomes very important that there's something elemental and different about Africans. My goodness. And I think that it's related to the final um, uh, thing that we see, the final tendency in these essays, and that's the taxonomic uh, possibility. 
Now, for the long, longest time, taxonomy or classification didn't exist, particularly for humans. Uh, Aristotle invented essentially classification or made it much more popular for the Western world and, and uh, other places as well. Certainly, North Africans were um, thinking about this. But what's really uh, important during the 17th and 18th century is that the word race is going to be used in a zoological fashion for the first time in 1684 in a journal article that gets republished about 40 years later. And people are going to start thinking about the idea that, wait, we can divide the world in a new way. In fact, that article is called a new division of the earth. And the new division of the earth is not done by nations. It's not done by cultures. It's not done by geography per se. It's done by the word, done with the word race or type. And this is a really a hugely important shift that's taking place uh, during the 18th century. And people are citing different authors. They don't cite this guy whose name was Bernier. They cite Carl Linnaeus. Mm. Linnaeus is the Swede who in 1735 published his System of Nature, his Systema Natura. And in this book, he will uh, break humans down into four different varieties, four different types in a schematic way it, uh, for the first kind of scientific uh, first scientific classification scheme. Hugely influential to see uh, people being organized in what looks very much like a hierarchy. Um, and this is going to show up. It's very interesting. This is only five years later. We see Linnaeus being cited in several of these essays. Taxonomy and classification in general are what really makes race. We talked about environment, we talked about genealogical, we talked about anatomical explanations, but taxonomy provides the uh, intellectual infrastructure yes. for race. Mm -hmm. It allows centuries, if not millennia, of xenophobia to be organized in a very clean, rational, taxonomic, schematic kind of fashion. And so instead of looking at different types of people in travel narratives or looking at uh, trying to figure out who people are by reading compilations or encyclopedias, a classification creates hierarchies. It's much more readily accessible. And you really start thinking about people as separate categories. So we really have those five tendencies, which are really very important for the, the genesis of the idea of race during the 18th century right here, a really interesting focus group. Oh my goodness, this is absolutely incredible. And so what, what's so interesting about this also, it, it, now uh, in our era, there's been this big shift uh, toward STEM, right? Science, technology, engineering, math, and, and, and for some time now, uh, for a long time, a sense that somehow those, those fields have a greater claim to the truth in some way. These are the objective uh, 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 pathways of knowledge, whereas other things like theater or, or even religion uh, for some people uh, seem to be uh, uh, a secondary or, or lower way of knowing. Um, and so there's this, this strength of, of science that seems to be, to be gathered here, but also it's completely fallacious. There, there, these Barrere experiments, I, uh, listening to you, I, I couldn't help uh, but wonder, how, how could he have seen uh, black blood or black internal organs? Um, do you think that uh, there's some fabrication going on here or, or, or maybe witnessing a medical anomaly because we know that the that our organs inside do uh, all look the same, are made of the same stuff. So, so it's just so interesting this this weird kind of brackish water moment where science is mm. is trying to uh, assert itself, where these types of thinkers are, are are coming forward and saying we we can make these truth claims, but also at the same time, sort of what they consider scientific would not pass. Uh, the test in terms of our rigors of process today? Yeah, what a rich question. I, I think that if we look back to the role of science and proto-science uh, during the 18th century, there are um, a, a lot of things we can say. First thing is that 
theoretically, the 18th century is the century where uh, thinkers and anatomists and scientists and I should say natural philosophers and naturalists had inherited ideas from Bacon and Locke. It's supposed to be a century of great empiricism, moving away from Descartes' idea that there are these ideas that, pre, that are already out there and we will base our understanding of reality on those a priori's. Uh, an empirical view of the world is one where you observe, you assess, and then you draw your conclusions after the fact, right? So this is a kind of empiricism 101. And most of these people had been bathing in these ideas. And yet, as you said, somebody like Barin or, uh, uh, or uh, Meckel, all the other anatomists are on a quest to find something. I think that's the problem. They were convinced that there was some fundamental difference and the more they look, the more they find things. And so the, this an anatomical kind of insanity that you're describing begins in the 17th century with a guy by the name of Malpighi, who discovered theoretically um, something called the Malpighian layer or the retinucosum, which is actually just the area where melanin resides in the skin. So everybody, of course, has this. Everybody's got the same color blood. Everybody's got the same color bile. But when anatomists were looking for things, they were just they were they were sure that there was something really different in Africans, and that's why the attention is always, you know, um, directed toward Africans, and they find things. And when they publish them, and this is important, when they publish them, they get huge reactions. Mm -hmm. The Malpighian layer becomes, for Voltaire, for example, the French philosophe his rallying cry saying, we Africans are a separate species. He's a polygenist. He believes that the, these people are separate species. And so he's going to be looking at these anatomical structures as a justification for that idea. So I think we have to uh, acknowledge the fact that these things had such a huge impact in the same way that in the academy that certain things are, are hot. Yes. African anatomy was hot wow. um, at the time. Even entirely spurious ideas. Wow. And and so let me uh, ask you, thinking of these spurious ideas and with this deep knowledge that you have of these particular essays, um, is there uh, a, a favorite one? I think when, when readers uh, uh, are going to pick up this book and start to read through these essays, they might be a bit shocked by how completely bizarre they are and mm -hmm. and some of these ideas that are that are being put forward so was there one when you first read it that you found particularly entertaining or shocking uh in its ideas well i certainly i spent the most time thinking about the anatomical one by barrer but the one that i should just cite uh, uh Henry Louis Gates Jr. Skip, his favorite one is the one having to do with maternal imagination. So maternal imagination, what's that you're asking? So the idea that there was a very prevalent idea, um, which actually dates from antiquity, that an improperly stimulated female imagination during gestation can imprint itself on the fetus that's uh, growing inside the woman in the womb. So uh, one of the explanations naturally for blackness is that a, a woman a long, long time ago, a, a white woman was um, either fantasizing about something black or a, a different uh, white woman uh, is thinking about a black man while she's having sex with a white man and produces a black child. So this huge kind of theory of maternal imagination uh, shows up in many of these essays. There's one in particular that has a pretty uh, um, sophisticatedly developed uh, idea of maternal imagination, but this idea is quite prevalent in the in the 18th century. So I think that's the kind of the the fun one, if there is a fun one in this in this kind of rogues gallery of explanations of human difference. Oh my gosh! So so you can see how this type of quote unquote science was exciting for people to read. They're reading about uh, these sort of magical phenomena in black bodies and in, the, and in maternal imagination and what's happening when people are having sex. You know, it's sort of uh, not quite the uh, Cosmo magazine of today, but uh, certainly also not the, uh, the, the types of journal articles that circulate in scientific journals about a biological phenomena. 
Yes, I think that's right. Um, if you can kind of close your, idea, your eyes and think about the different kinds of essays that are here. You have essays that believe in pure metaphysics, the idea of God you know, putting his or her hand on, on something, on a phenomenon, and creating something there. That's metaphysical. It's beyond the physical realm. You have really cut and dry anatomical scientific things which don't talk about God at all. It's all about nature and the phenomena associated with nature. You have things kind of in between. You've got climate plus religion. You have anatomy plus religion. And then you have this really kind of liminal zone of the maternal imagination, which kind of seems magical, but for a lot of people would be seen as something perfectly natural because it's not a kind of diabolical intervention, although those are a different that's a different explanation, but it's an it's an idea somehow that there was there is something that can happen that can really change embryology. And embryology is actually really very much related to this um, question as well. And it, it gets into the, the religious slash natural idea. So you're, you're talking about sex and procreation and where people come from. That's part and parcel of this of this whole question. Wow. So if you think about eggs a little bit and the fact that people were uh, believed that the world was created 6,000 years before that, that, that makes a, a lot of pro makes a lot of problems for people thinking about eggs and the way that that naturalists at the time dealt with it is they said that everything was preformed almost like a Russian doll that in every woman have the, uh, every woman or God at this at the time that the world was created with uh, humans next to the first animals the, the the Eve had all the eggs that would go all the way to the end of creation Wow. And so they're looking at this in this in this way. And and so when you start talking about different human humans, different colors, you get into all sorts of problems. Certain people said that, oh, after a certain time, the eggs turn black. Um, uh, and then there's a the some of the naturalists are saying, no, no, you know, if you look at what happens in barnyards, you know, you have hybrids, you have uh, a kind of a more dynamic nature. And so they start talking about an epigenic uh, notion of embryology where two things are coming together and creating new things and perhaps you're going to create a new variety because you've moved to a different environment and that's going to produce a different kind of type of person. So this question of embryology is, is very much linked to the kind of tension between religion and science and also to things like the maternal imagination, the idea that somehow something natural can really change something in the present. Wow. And, and listening to you, it's also clear with this particular example of the maternal imagination that uh, gender, that the notion of men and women and their roles in this process is also under examination here. Yeah, um, I think gender is you know, really another kind of hidden aspect of this question. The first thing is that the term um, African, uh, the term the, the term used for African would be the equivalent of Negro in these essays. And generally that term is being used in order to talk about men because most of the enslaved people in the Caribbean were men. And so there's this kind of funny thing that's happening there and it translates into the scientific text as well. When we're talking about an African or a, uh, a black they are thinking generally about men. There would be a, a, a female equivalent uh, word for a, a woman, a woman Negro. And so occasionally that, that name comes up, but generally the default setting for Africans in these essays, and when we're talking about Africans like Caribbean, is uh, the, the, uh, the male. Hmm. And that's one thing that's interesting. There are also um, on the level of kind of sexuality, uh, I think it's important to, uh, to talk about the fact that uh, when Europeans are talking about West Africans, there's the idea that they can do things that no other, no other people can do because nature is so much more dynamic and wild in Africa. Mm -hmm. Africa has the animals that Europeans can, can't even fathom. Um, and the same thing is attributed to Africans themselves. Uh, Africans in particular, compared to everyone else in the globe, have the reputation among people writing travelogues and natural historians as being hypersexual. There's a real sexuality associated with Africans that is not associated with any other group of people in, in travelogues. 
And so there's there's an idea that somehow this may actually translate as well into uh, things having to do with with uh, fertilization of eggs and uh, conception, gestation, and so on and so forth. Wow, yeah, that is uh, really interesting. And I just I'm going to want to uh, uh, talk in a minute about the result of the contest and whether somebody won. But but I just want to. Um, do one little uh, uh, digression here. If these, if these stereotypes, these very negative anti-black stereotypes are circulating, and earlier we were talking about the fact that there are these black individuals, African and African-descended individuals, Creoles, who are in France at the time, numbering in the thousands, um, when we think about this country and the way that its its face quite literally was already changing, um, what are the other manifestations? You know, I'm thinking about uh, about the question of controlling black bodies. Who's actually allowed to be there, and what are they allowed to be doing? Is the state also thinking about these questions? Is there a way in which, if these essays are of scientific interest, uh, of popular interest in some way, is there also a kind of governmental or state application reaction to these ideas about African and African-descended people? So that's a, a really uh, great question because it allows me to clarify one of the rule of the roles of the members of the Bordeaux Academy. So I said 40 men, uh, half pretty much, half had some kind of real world experience in terms of science. They might be hydrographers or something like that, or botanists. The other half were these nobles, including someone like Montesquieu was a member of the Bordeaux Academy of Science, and he was very interested in, clim in, in climate theory. And a lot of people were members of parliament, including Montesquieu. Now, why do I bring this up? I bring this up because uh, in 1738, uh, the king, is realizing there are a lot of Africans and Creole Africans circulating in France, and he's very nervous about miscegenation and race mixing. And so he creates a proclamation that needs to be ratified by the par parliaments all over Europe. And uh, so Nault, uh, of course, uh, ratifies that. And what it does is it essentially uh, doubles down on the legalization of slavery in France. Um, and it also controls uh, uh, the, the roles of Africans and enslaved Africans who are showing up in France. They need to stay for a short amount of time and leave. They need to have a job, an important job, and they need to get training. So it's almost like a kind of vocational school for them to go back and work in the colonies. And that's really interesting because first, I mean, you know, the, the Bordeaux, it's, it was hard to find a kind of a link. There's very kind of real few concrete links, but the idea that the members of the Bordeaux Academy would then go over to Parliament and vote on the legality of slavery during in 1738, I think was really interesting. And the second thing that, you know, to get to, to, to look at this question a little bit more broadly was that France for the longest time was a, had uh, benefited from the free soil principle. And this was a, something that was instituted uh, during the uh, Middle Ages, the idea that you would show up in France, you'd set foot in France, and you would be free. For, in fact, the word franc, franc, free, are all kind of uh, part of the same kind of etymological realm. And what happened in 1719 was that uh, uh, the regent who replaced Louis XIV, the Sun King who had died, was very pro-colonial, and he got rid of the free soil principle mm. in the same way, made a, a declaration, a proclamation that uh, uh, Africans who came to France would not be free. Hmm. So this is the end of the free soil uh, principle. And you could see that this goes on in France quite a bit. The, uh, uh, there are a lot of debates about this uh, on the uh, legal level. I'm not an expert on that, but it's really fascinating to see that the idea of freedom was uh, was being debated uh, in French in French legal circles throughout the 18th century, and in certain regions, this would be ratified, and other places would vote, vote against it. Yes, but it's it is fascinating. You're right that there are there's a lot of kind of new policing that goes on during the 18th century. In the 1770s, there's also something called the Police of the Blacks, which is instituted to kind of 
make sure that uh, there are not too many Africans. And in fact, in Bordeaux, there's a time when they're all kind of locked up in the same area. Yes, yes. It, it, and I think it's so important and powerful and something that will be of interest to uh, C-SPAN viewers uh, is that these questions of policing black bodies, of surveillance, um, of racial profiling, uh, can be tracked back hundreds of years, can be tracked back to this to this period, and that there is, just as you said, 1777, this law that's called la police des noirs, the policing of blacks, the police of blacks. So it's just so interesting. Um, I want to bring us back to this essay contest and to what happens, what, uh, who wins, uh, what, what, what happens, what does the Academy do with these essays? So as I said, they get together and they look at these essays and they had very strict rules about who could win, who could not. So in the archives, you can see very short annotations on the essays themselves, like, oh, arrived two weeks late, excluded from the contest. So there are four or five that are in that case. And I also mentioned the fact that I saw the document uh, that summarized theoretically what had happened during the contest. And it was not very helpful. But okay. what we do know <laughs> is that the members of the Bordeaux Royal Academy of Sciences said this contest is going to be null and void because they couldn't find something that was up to their standards. Or for some other reason, they were afraid of canonizing the essay on anatomy because it had no mention of God. Now, they were very much scientific, but they wanted to actually have it both ways. They didn't want to uh, publicize things that would go against the faith. So maybe that's one reason. So um, what's interesting about this is that uh, in the archives, I also found something that mentioned that in, case, in cases where they did not uh, give a prize for a contest, they would take the money and buy shares or maybe a share in the Company of the Indies, which is a trading company during the 18th century, which was involved very much in the traffic of enslaved Africans. And so it's interesting to see that there is a kind of a concrete link between the contest and the slavery taking place in the French Caribbean that made Bordeaux such a rich place. Oh my gosh, wow. Well, uh, well. speaking about uh, the results of this, I, I wanted to um, talk a little bit about the, the, the legacy, sort of what, what happens next. So, so in this book, which uh, uh, this is such a wonderful addition that, that you included it, there was actually a second contest in Bordeaux, run by that academy. And so I'd love to hear more about the second contest. What's the question? What happens? And then uh, we can take a little bit of time uh, to talk about maybe the sort of the long-term ramifications of this, of this whole moment of thinking in history. Sure. So uh, yes, in the 1770s, things are shifting dramatically in France. And uh, without falling too much into the trap of what historians call periodization, where they look at the fact at each decade and say that people are thinking this way then, and this way then, and this way then, this whole project kind of debunks that because it is a vertical slice of time and it shows people are thinking a lot of different ways. And yet, generally in the 1740s, 1730s, the more naturalistic or philosophical thinking people that we associate with the Enlightenment are preoccupied with one big thing, and that is not Africans. Mm -hmm. It is God and getting rid of God, or at least pushing God to the side so that they can get on with the business of real science and real thinking and real humanistic pursuits. So certainly they, among those pursuits is the question of the human, and as we move from the anthropocentric to the anthropological, that's what's happening here. We're going from an, an idea of a universal human, the idea that we're interested in everybody, to the idea we're interested in kind of breaking people down and thinking about their specific aptitudes, and liabilities, uh, and that's a very different kind of thing. So that's 1740s, 1750s, we start moving through time, and uh, the philosophers start getting much more interested in the world in general including the colonial world mm. and many of them are realizing that what is going on in the colonial world is pretty awful and among those people 
R. Uh, Diderot, a guy by the name of Raynal, R-A-Y-N-A-L. And there are a lot of other kind of proto anti-colonial or at least kind of questioning the colonial empire. And what happens in 1770 in particular is uh, this same guy I just mentioned, Raynal, R-A-Y-N-A-L, publishes a book called The History of the Two Indies, the East Indies and the West Indies. And this is a philosophical and historical interrogation of the colonial enterprise by Europeans. First time something like this happens. And this really wakes people up because it's not only a description of colonization in a kind of celebratory way, but it does have that element. It talks about what we might call race. It talks about the abuses, the, particularly the abuses of the, the, the evil Spanish, because the French are always uh, 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 saying the Spanish are terrible, um, and the abuses in the New World in particular. The fact that uh, millions of Amerindians were uh, killed both by disease and by the, the Spanish in particular. So anyway, this book is really making people think twice about a lot of stuff. And this is also the same time that a number of thinkers Voltaire, whom I mentioned, Helvetius, uh, Diderot, um, are questioning questioning uh, um, the existence of slavery. Some people want to reform slavery, make it better, make it enlightened. And there's a great oxymoron, the idea of enlightened slavery. Mm. And some people are real abolitionists when it stops slavery or at least stop the slave trade. So by 1770, uh, Bordeaux, which is the city which has really benefited from slavery, is looking in the mirror. And one of their, um, some of their uh, academy members actually are very much involved with the slave trade. And they're, they're thinking about these things in the same way that people thought about apartheid, I think, for a long time. So there are, there are um, protests. There are a lot of people who are trying to figure out what Bordeaux can do. And so they publish a new contest. How can, uh, um, I think the idea is that uh, we're looking for doctors to supply essays on how they can improve the conditions of enslaved Africans during the Middle Passage. So this is a kind of an idea that's very much linked to an idea of enlightened slavery, the idea that rationalization and progress, we can make it better, better both for the planter and better both for the enslaved African. They only get three essays because, at least I think, I think that this was such an incendiary topic at the time that they didn't want to incur the wrath of the Reynals and the Diderots of the world who were taking their uh, pen and writing vociferously against uh, the pro-slavery lobby. Diderot in particular is amazing. I wrote a biography of Diderot. I just love this guy, he's so interesting. But he, he said that there will be a code blanc as opposed to a code noir, which is the French slave code, and that the white planters will be put to the sword. He said this 10 years before Haiti took place. He also uh, refuted all the racial justifications of slavery in a way that no one had ever done before. So in Bordeaux, they're really thinking about this uh, um, and in a way that's quasi-enlightened, uh, but at the same time really is not enlightened at all because it's not anti-slavery. It's asking or you know, hoping for a better form of slavery that will allow people from Bordeaux to maintain their wonderful economy and all the advantages of having a direct and huge relationship with the Caribbean world by the 1770s. Wow. Well, thank you so much. This has uh, been so fascinating, and uh, I'd uh, just love it. We have we have one minute left. If you could tell us, what uh, would you and Henry Louis Gates like uh, your readers, the readers of Who's Black and Why, uh, to take away from this uh, very fascinating moment in history uh, that you are uh, bringing to the public with these essay contests? Well, I think that it's important for people to understand that race was an invented concept, and this allows us all to see each other as regular humans and normal and universal. So there's a kind of a universalism that is part and parcel of this, this whole idea, which is interesting. And I think it also allows us to think about creating a more skept skeptical view of some of the uh, racialized taxonomies and things that we hear about still in the, in the press. You know, there are, there's a lot of kind of racial science uh, that is being used against people of color, for a lot of reasons, whether it's in the medical industry, 
Um, I think healthcare is a perfect example. But I think that a lot of these structures have flaked and reformed and they find themselves in contemporary culture. And hopefully reading this book will allow people to kind of stand back and understand the methods that contributed to these phenomena. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Curran. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much, Christy. Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards podcast. If you are interested in podcasts about nonfiction books, listen to C-SPAN's Book Notes Plus podcast for interviews with authors and historians hosted by Brian Lamb.